Good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be back here. I was here in December and uh, very, very glad to be able to bring God's Word to you yet again. So thank you for having me. Uh, this morning we're going to be working through Psalm 53. So if you'll turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 53. And if you don't have a Bible today, no problem. It should be on the screen. Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven and on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat at my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we're so thankful to have the truth of your word. We're so thankful that you are the God of life who still speaks even today through your word to us. We're thankful for your law and that it brings clarity to what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. But we're also thankful for the good news of Christ's life, death, resurrection and ascension and even return to rescue sinners. We ask that today as we read your word and as we hear it, may we be stirred up to obedience because of what you have done in that great and glorious accomplishment of salvation. We love you. Please help us in our weakness, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So how many of you have ever been with a daughter, maybe a son, a niece, a nephew, maybe a friend's child? They grab their hand, they put it over their eyes, and they say, you can't see me. You can't see me. I have two, actually I have three, three now, three young kids, and um, mine do this all the time. And it's cute, it's funny, because they're too young to realize just because they can't see you doesn't mean that you can't see them. And in so many ways, that's what human beings do, natural human beings who are given to their natural tendencies and desires, their own hearts. That's what they do. That's what we do to God. We cover our eyes and we say, I can't see you. You can't see me. You're not there. You cannot see my thoughts. You cannot see my decisions. You cannot see the things that I want. And our culture, the West in general, has been covering its eyes towards God more and more for some time. Worship today, what you're doing right here, right now, is becoming more and more marginal, isn't it? Worshiping Christ is seen as too exclusive. The Christian religion, or religion in general, is beginning to become merely cultural in the eyes of our society. The church has had a bad rap over the millennia and perhaps still does today, the world would say. Hell seems to be unjust. 
The church seems to be too hitched to a particular political party. So what does the world do? Instead, now we become merely spiritual, right? Instead, what if all religions, what if all worldviews are equal in value? Or what if, perhaps, this is all there is? We're just a bunch of little atoms moving around, about to pass on in time. And maybe you're thinking as I say these things, you're like, yeah, things are messed up. I can see the people who live next door to me. I can see the people on the freeway. It is getting bad if you're watching the news. But if you're thinking that, remember, we're not all quite off the hook ourselves yet. I was reading recently a very famous sociologist named Peter Berger. He has this book called The Many Altars of Modernity. And in it, he's explaining how even deeply Christian people, deeply religious people, often live in two spheres at the same time. They live in a society that is outside of the realm of God, against God, and yet they're also simultaneously religious people. And when they move in this world from daily life, say for instance when you go to the doctor, you're not necessarily as concerned about whether your doctor is a Christian because you're concerned about whether they understand the human body or medicine. You have this sort of life that seems to be detached from God. But then the Christian will move into the religious sphere, he says, on Sunday morning when they do their devotionals. And then they get sort of sucked in to the religious thing when they're reading God's Word, kind of like a good movie. You know, the way that a good movie really kind of pulls you into the story. You forget about what's going on in your life. You forget about the concerns that you have. And then all of a sudden, the credits roll. Everything gets lit up in the theater. People start looking for their keys and walking outside. He says that's what happens to religious people when they finally leave church. They kind of go back and act like secular people. They cross the threshold back into the godless world and live in many ways as if there is no God. So I bring that up and say we're not off the hook because, yes, the world is denying God more and more, but all of us in here are more tempted to cover our eyes towards God live like practical atheists more than we could ever realize. Working through Psalm 53 today, and for any of you who know the Psalms well, this is actually one of the only Psalms that is almost identical to another in the Psalter. Psalm 14 is almost word for word in every piece the same as Psalm 53, except for the final line. And for those of us who are trying to get through the Bible in a year, if we realize that, sometimes we might be tempted to skip it, to move ahead and say, okay, I've already read this one. I know it. I can move on. Or for others of us, we would see, huh, this is in here twice. God doesn't forget. God doesn't make mistakes. Maybe there's something here he really wants me to see. Think about other texts that are in the Bible twice. What did we just read about 10 minutes ago? That's in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy. So some of the most important things in Scripture are repeated. And as we work through this psalm today, we're going to ask three questions. Number one, well, this this whole psalm is about the God-denying fool. And so we're going to ask three questions about the fool. What's wrong with the God-denying fool? Number two, how prevalent is the God-denying fool And number three, how will it all end for the God-denying fool? What's wrong? How prevalent? How will it all end? 
So point number one, what's wrong? The God-denying fool has a God-denying heart and a God-denying life. Uh, The beginning of verse one, David says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, how would you describe a fool? When I say the word fool, who do you know that maybe comes to mind? Maybe it's a former coworker, somebody from your younger years. There's lots of things that we could use to describe a fool. Somebody who we personally find to be, this might be a harsh word, but we think is stupid. Someone who won't listen. Someone who's arrogant. Someone who makes serial mistakes. The key, what makes a fool a fool, is that they don't live within reality. They're blind to reality. Instead of running from danger, they run to danger. Embracing death, they think they're embracing life. Rejecting the truth, they swallow what is false. Like a child who you catch drinking dirty water in the backyard. Like a teen who thinks that experimenting with drugs is going to somehow fill the void, bring satisfaction that they're deeply longing for. Like the adulterer who thinks this new thing in their life is giving them so much vitality, making them so alive. So much so that they will leave their own family only very, very shortly to realize it was the worst decision they could have ever made. But the fool that David is speaking of here is a very particular species of fool. Calvin describes this word as not just a fool. John Calvin says it is a fool who is perverse, a fool who is vile, and a fool who is contemptible. Michael Fox, a very famous, very helpful scholar of the wisdom literature, says this is the type of fool that is base, worthless, scornful, and incites mass social disgust. And we get a picture into his heart, his or her heart. He says there is no God. He could mean this very narrowly. He could be an ancient atheist, right? Not every farmer 3,000 years ago really believed that the gods controlled the rain and the sun and his crops. Not every Greco-Roman politician thought the pantheon was real, but used religion to try to get ahead and gain power in Rome. He could be narrowly like that, or he could be broadly. Living a God, ignoring life like what Berger talked about. The person who steps into the threshold of religion for a time, but then for the majority of his day, steps outside practically an atheist. But the fool here thinks he's discovered a secret. There really is no God. But the irony is, is the secret he thinks he has discovered is actually lunacy. His insight is actually poison. Think about this. What could actually be more fundamental to reality than God? What could be more basic to existence than God himself. He is the one who has decreed all things we read. He is the one who has created all things by the word of his power. He is the one who sustains all things, even us right now at this very moment. Hearing, watching, living, breathing. It is God himself who sustains 
every one of those acts. And he has done all of that, made all of that for himself. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. And yet, that is the one thing that the fool denies. The thing that he thinks he has discovered does not exist. So that is the fool's God-denying heart, but he also therefore lives a God-denying life. The second half of verse 1, it says, They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. His inward thoughts necessarily become outward actions and manifestations in his life. It's the principle of Proverbs being worked out, right? Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all things, for from it flows the issues of life. And so that's what happens with the fool. He rejects the most basic truth about reality and therefore lives falsely, inconsistently, and against reality, and it's harmful. In many ways, it's like a navigator who doesn't believe in any sense of direction, doesn't believe in north, south, east, or west. It's like a composer who doesn't believe in sound or music or beauty. It cannot work. But what's the basic appeal? Why does the fool want to believe there is no God? Well, think about this. If there is no God, then there are no rules. And if there are no rules, then there is no failure. And if there is no failure, then there is no judgment. Think about this. No rules. If no God, no rules. Very, very famous philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. About 100 years ago, very well known, he said this. If there is no God, then we have moved beyond morality. He kind of fleshes it out by saying this. Imagine to yourself that if greed, lust, hatred, envy, imagine if those were virtue. Imagine if those were what we would call the fruit of the Spirit, right? That you should be greedy, lustful, angry, violent, envious. He would say most people in the Western world today would be horrified by that if that was the right thing to do. But he says if there's no God, it's actually far more horrifying and terrifying than that. It's more fundamental of a change. And he says, clench your fists, hang on. If there is no God, wait for it, there is no must There is no you should do X, whether it's love your neighbor or hate your neighbor. The very idea of you should does not exist if there is no God. And that is the horrifying reality of the truth. If there is no God, morals are simply an illusion. You do what you want, when you want, how you want, to who you want. We saw this in part 60 years ago in Hayton Ashbury with the counterculture, free love, tune in, drop out, reject authority, and things have only further progressed and progressed and progressed. But if there's no rules, there's also no failure. Sin becomes this sort of antiquated old myth. The slogan is there are no moral acts. You are just a religious person interpreting what I'm doing as sinful. It's like a football game, but there's no rules, there's no penalty, there's no score, and therefore no one can lose. 
And you might be thinking, well, that's a pretty weird game. Who would even want to play that? And that's the sad reality that people who deny God come to slowly. Why do I even want to play the game? If there's no rules and there's no failure, there's no self-guilt, and people think I am free to finally be my real self, the person within the thing that I feel, and I can write off all those Victorian fundamentalist narrow Christians. And so if there's no rules, there's no failure, and then there's no judgment. No final account to give to God. You can be a Russian autocrat, or at least you can be a Russian ruler, potentially execute millions of your people in the early 20th century and think you're not going to face any condemnation in the life to come. Think of John Lennon's very, very famous song, Imagine. The very beginning. How does it go? I'm sure your pastor has quoted the songs. That's so good. (laughs) Imagine. No heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below. Above us only sky. What's one major problem with John Lennon's song, apart from the fact that it's false? It's also naive. What does he say? He says, imagine no war, no religion, and what's the result? Only peace. (laughs) What is the result of the God-denying life? And what is the result of the God-denying society? It is insanity because you have rejected the most basic truth of existence. I don't know if any of you have heard of something called the Groningen Project. It was just referenced in one of the prayers up here earlier that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, praise God. Hopefully millions and millions of unborn humans' lives will not be terminated, murdered, killed in the womb now. But there's something even, you could argue, slightly scarier... At the same time, you can't say it's more, but it seems more frightening to us as a culture, bubbling up in Europe, something percolating that is very dark. There's something called the Groningen Project in the Netherlands, and it's sort of the beginning of this movement of medicine, that in the Netherlands, if you have a child who was born with a condition that the medical field at the time, which does change, but at the time deems to be, one, unbearably painful, and two, with no hope of improvement. You know what the parents can do with their newborn baby? They have up to an entire year to take their living, breathing, walking child back to the hospital to be euthanized. Up to a year. That's what's happening in the so-called enlightened God-denying world, a nation that crafted the canons of Dort, a nation who used to love the Savior, has moved so far away from God. Francis Schaeffer has said long ago that something like this would happen. If you've ever seen the old, old video called Whatever Happened to Humanity, as Francis Schaeffer talking on cultural points, and he talks about abortion first, and he says, abortion typically starts with extreme cases trying to justify the killing of a baby with something very, very unusual, whether it's a rape victim or it's potentially life-threatening to the mom. But once the foot gets in the door, it slowly widens, it slowly widens, and becomes an issue of rights of the mother. 
and then it eventually becomes a casual form of birth control. But Schaefer says it doesn't stop there. You think it would, but it doesn't. It will only be a matter of time until society begins to kill those who are also outside of the womb. And it will be the same. It will start with very extreme cases. And then it will slowly become about the rights. But Schaefer says it won't be the rights about an individual at that point. It'll be about the rights likely of the society to economically sustain those who cannot be means of production and contribute to the rest of the world. It will become the rights of the culture to terminate their life. What is the problem? Proclaiming to be wise, they became fools. Number two, the God-denying fool, how prevalent? How prevalent are they? We see God's search, and we see God's verdict. Verse number two, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Things are so so bad, God has to look, and what does he see? Well, he uses two criteria. Does anybody see? Does anybody understand? Does anybody grasp what is true and right? Does anybody have real insight. And number two, equated with this in many ways, does anybody seek God? Does anybody not deny me? We see here that David propounds the same principle in Proverbs, that seeking God and wisdom, loving God and understanding are equated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a reasonable standard, isn't it? reasonable criteria for a search if God is the basis of existence. But what does the Lord see? Verse 3, They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. That's the outcome of God's search. That is the report of what God has seen. Of course, God is omniscient, and David is using imagery here, but God declares, they have all fallen. They are all corrupt. No one does good. Not one. The entire mass is rotten. The whole pool is polluted. Every single organism is diseased. I'm going to read three verses for us real quickly, just that support this and are parallel to this. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8.7 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. No one colors inside the lines. No one plays by the rules. No one fits the mold. No one passes the test. So what is the implication then? What is David saying? Well, remember who's that fool? That despicable, socially disgusting person? David is saying there's a slice of that. There's a seed of that. There's a piece of that in every single one of us. That is a representation of humanity as a whole. 
And some of you, you think, amen, that's why I'm here. I know that's me. I know that's how I am by nature. And I know that I need Jesus. I know that I need the gospel or else I will destroy my life. But others of you will say, I don't know. I, that would, that's not me. I can't see that in me. I'm not like them. But David says, how prevalent? Not even one. All people, all places, throughout all time. Point number three, how will it all end then for the God-denying fool? God destroys the fool and he rescues the wise. Uh, Verses four through five, have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. If you were the judge, what would you do? Let's just pretend, hypothetically, there is an attorney who was supposed to be someone who brings justice, argues for justice, protects justice, Justice, but someone like a better call Saul who begins to corrupt justice. Someone who begins to play with justice for their own benefits. Somebody who begins to poster themselves all over the road to advertise the perversion of justice. What would you do to that person? They should receive justice. God's question is, don't they See, do they have zero knowledge? But the fool is blind, is what David says. They can't see. When they think about their own judgment coming in the years to come, it's dark, it's void, it's not there on their mental map. They are literally blind to it. You know, the human eye can see lots of things, can't it? But there's all sorts of waves of light that your eye can't see. Think about UV light. Today's a perfect example. If you went to the beach today, right? If you went down to the avenues and you didn't wear any sunscreen and you were out there for a long time, you would get sunburned, even though it looks like it's going to rain in about 30 seconds. Why? Because there's waves of light that you can't see that are still going to burn you, UV. Or there's even infrared, right? Infrared is so red that your eye can't see it. So no matter how hard you try, how much you squint, you are blind to it. That is the fool and their judgment. That is the fool and the truth of God. Then God says, there they are in great terror, and that he will scatter the bones of those who encamp against you. So here David has shifted, and now is talking about God's people. And he says, those who are coming against you, people of God, they feel secure. They feel strong. They reject God. Just like somebody who's besieging an ancient city. If you recall, a lot of warfare would happen where a city would have high walls for protection. A foreign army comes to try to take it. What does the city do? Raise up the gate. And hopefully we've been wise and we've been stockpiling food. Hopefully we have fresh water. Hopefully we have a way to get human waste outside of the city to stop disease. And at that point it becomes a waiting game. Will the army give up? Will the people in the city run out of supplies? We have to wait and see. But the people who feel strong 
are the people outside the city. The army who can get food, water, and supplies whenever they want. They feel secure. They feel in charge. That's what God says the fool feels in his heart. 2 Peter 3 talks about the scoffer like this. The people who scoff at the Christian who say, yeah, 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 God's going to come back riding on a white horse and destroy the world. Sure. And Peter says, and he will. And it's actually God's kindness that will lead them to repentance. It's God's kindness right now allowing them to even say that because he will rescue some of them. But God says the waiting, the period of kindness does not last forever. Suddenly, judgment comes upon them. Suddenly, there will be terror, great terror. One of the translations that I just read from the ESV says, terror when there is no terror. But another way to read it is terror like there has never been will strike them. Kind of like Belshazzar, if you recall in the book of Daniel. Big old Babylonian feast, party of parties. What happens? Gigantic hand out of nowhere just starts writing on the wall. What does Belshazzar do? The music stops. Everybody looks. And the ESV says very kindly that Belshazzar's loins were loosed. That's how afraid he was. Great, great terror. The irony is the God they deny is the God who will come and destroy them. He will scatter their bones, David says. That's a particular type of death. That means you're not buried, and that means you've been cursed. Again, think about Jezebel. You guys remember her? Ahab's wife? She dies a cursed death, trying to lead Israel astray into the worship of Baal. And so what happens to her? She dies, being thrown out of a window, and dogs come and eat her. And little bits of Jezebel get digested and placed all around the land of Israel in the fields. That's the cursed death that comes upon the fool. And if you're not a Christian today, or if you're curious about Christianity and you're here at church, you're watching online, whatever it is, and you're thinking, gosh, I like Jesus, but this God you talk about just sounds so cruel. That's why I can't buy in. That's why I deny him. Just four questions for you to consider. Number one, God does judge, but he judges in righteousness. And if people are truly corrupt, and if you can't admit that, but if people are truly corrupt, isn't there some form of justice needed? And number two, if you think God is cruel, think about the Nietzsche quote. What did Nietzsche say? If you don't believe in God, how can you think cruel is anything? Why is cruel wrong? Why is cruel bad? Why is cruel objectionable? If there is no God, there are no morals. And number three, if you have this sort of supposed standard, what is your basis? Why do you think you can impose it on other people? Why can you be so intolerant to impose it on the God of the Bible? It might be the case that your problem with God and his just judgment 
reveals that you have some things you're borrowing from God. It might just be the case that you think morals might be given rather than chosen. Things to think about. But there is an alternative ending for the fool. There's an alternative ending to the story that is possible. Verse 6. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now, this is a pretty abrupt switch. It's been, everything is terrible, condemnation is coming, judgment awaits, and then David says, oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. And he's making some contrasts here. God rescues the wise, those who seek him, but God rejects the fools who deny him. God regathers the fortunes of his people, but God scatters the bones of those who deny him. God brings great joy to his people, but God brings utter terror to those who deny him. David uses the word salvation here in a way you can't see. He's he's actually speaking about multiple salvations, speaking of salvation in the plural. And a lot of commentators think David's doing this to show the fullness of, of salvation, the totality, comprehensiveness of rescue that God brings out of Zion. But if you've been following along, how can God do that? Everybody is condemned. Everybody denies God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12. Paul uses this text in the New Testament to prove a very similar point. Romans 3, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, no, not one. He's showing Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, doesn't matter, everybody is condemned. If you grew up in the church, if you went to Christian school, if you read the Bible growing up as a kid, if you never heard the gospel, Everybody is universally condemned. And everybody was once the God-denying fool. But what does David say? That salvation would come from Zion. And what does Paul say in the next chapter of Romans? That salvation has come by faith. How is the fool rescued? How are we the fool rescued? One way and one way only. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is alone the one who does good. The only one. Christ alone is the one who sought, who seeks God, His Father, in all of life. Christ alone is truly wise. Christ alone can truly see the fullness of judgment coming. He understands the weight of the wrath that has to be taken. And He chooses it. He chooses the utter terror like there has been no terror for you to the point that he sweats drops of blood because he grasps the fullness of what lies ahead of the cross. He is rejected by God on the cross in Zion, wisdom incarnate, suffering for fools. God dying for God deniers taking the shame, taking the cursed death openly, eaten and consumed by wrath, bears justice 
for your secret thoughts, for your hidden decisions, for all your desires. But God rescues him in Zion, doesn't he? The Father restores to him the treasures that he earned in glorious, new, indestructible life and resurrection. Raises him to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And then Christ himself ascends from Zion to the heavenly Zion, the true temple. And then he looks down on us, not just to search, not just to make a verdict on the fallenness of humanity, but he looks down from heaven, sends his spirit to make you who is a fool wise. To bring you who are dead to life. To bring you the message of the gospel to be saved. So that one day, sadly not today, but one day you might by faith feed on Christ like bread, like wine, the fullness of all of his benefits. God is saying through Psalm 53, do not be a reality denying fool. Trust me. Seek me. Come to me. I am the center of everything. There is nothing more basic to you, this world, and everyone else besides me. I know that you're messed up. I know that you need forgiveness. I know what you have done. I know who you have hurt. I know the things that you still want. Just come to me. And I will rescue you because there is no other rescue. So brothers and sisters, may we stop covering our eyes. God says, come, come now. And he repeats this text for a reason. He repeats it for you. There is one story of humanity. There are two endings. Will you be the God-denying fool? Or will you be wise and come? Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for us sometimes to remember that who we really are apart from you. Sometimes we get caught in the moments thinking that we need less grace than we used to. May we remember the depths of the abyss of darkness in which you found us. Naked, broken, wicked, and yet you clothed us in righteous robes. You gave us rich, beautiful jewelry and bounty. You adorned us to be your very children, adopting us, granting us an inheritance that we did not earn. All through Christ. And so may we embrace Jesus and all of his promises. May we yet again this morning trust him, love him, remember what he has done for sinners like me. Empower us, Lord, we pray, to be faithful and to even proclaim this good news and share this good news with all the people just like us, the people who need you, just like we need you. Holy Spirit, do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.